This is Mike Roth. Welcome to the Open Forum in the Villages podcast. In this show, we're going to talk to leaders in the community, leaders of clubs, and interesting folks who live here in the villages to give perspective of what's happening here in the villages and information that I think all villagers should have. We hope to add a new episode most Friday at 9 o'clock. We are making a change soon. All of our shows will be distributed by a single podcast syndicator, Buzzsprout, both the old shows and the new show. We are also changing our subscription plans. Now you will be a supporter by simply making a subscription, subscribing via Buzzsprout. You can make a contribution of any amount that you'd like. We'd suggest $3 a month. If that's too much for your budget, you can pay less. Or if you're really enjoying what we're doing and want to see us continue, you can pay more. This is going to be a subscriber-supported podcast. We are making this conversion to make it easier for everybody. And all of the subscriber-only episodes that were available on Apple Podcasts will now be converted to the Buzzsprout channel and everyone can go ahead and listen to those. This is a call out and thank you to my supporters, to Alvin Stengel and Ed Williams and Dr. Craig Curtis at K2 The Villages. We'll be hearing more from K2 later in future episodes as they are now a major supporter. This is Mike Roth and Dr. Craig Curtis, and today we're talking about Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Curtis, why should someone who is not sure whether or not they have Alzheimer's may or may not have a family history, or the family history may be checkered in the sense they can't tell the difference between what grandma had was dementia caused by stroke or really Alzheimer's, why should that person join a study? I think that person would benefit if they choose to do a study, mainly because of the diagnostic ability we have in the clinical research arena. We now have the ability to find this disease prior to the disease becoming worse. And we are testing investigational medications that we hope will slow the disease. And in fact, we've had some successes with the world's first drug that is now slowing the disease, recently FDA approved. What is the name of that drug? Lecanemab. I'm glad you could pronounce it. <laughs> uh, so these drug companies come up with names like unbelievable. Couldn't come up with something simple like aspirin. <laughs> Dr. Curtis, to make people comfortable with participating in a clinical trial for people who have never participated in their lives in something like a clinical trial. Can you give them, a, our audience, a quick rundown of what's involved? How does it all start? Absolutely. So it all starts with what we call a consent form, which is generally a 20 to 30 page document, which describes the research and tells a person, an individual about what would happen in a research trial. And that's called informed consent because we want the patient to know everything about the research. Mm -hmm. Then it usually involves what we call screening procedures. And those are things like blood work to check your liver and your kidneys, a complete physical exam to look for any other unusual symptoms. Then we often proceed with an MRI of the brain, mm -hmm. not to look for Alzheimer's disease, but to look for other potential causes mm -hmm. of your memory loss. Things such as a small brain tumor or tiny strokes that you may be having that you're not really aware of. And then it usually culminates in a PET scan. Mm -hmm. And a PET scan 
can detect the causative protein, the causative problem of Alzheimer's disease, this PET scan that we use. And how long of a test is that? Usually, and I've had some MRIs, they're not unpleasant, but they don't take very long either. Uh, how long does a PET scan take? Approximately one hour. So they're in the machine with an hour? No, they're actually only in the machine for about 15 minutes. Why does it take an hour? Because we have to give a radio tracer that binds the amyloid, and, and we give that some time to bind to the amyloid. Then we do the PET scan and it lights up. Ah, okay. So the actual scan itself is is only approximately 15 minutes. Right. And it, how long does it take for the effects of the radioactive tracer? Oh, there's no effect. Patients don't feel an effect. Oh, great. Great. Are there any allergies that patients have that would eliminate them from a study? Only if they have allergies to similar medicines like antibodies, anti-other antibody medicines, or if they have allergies to pet tracers, which is very, very unusual. We don't see these very often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about people who have had a history of cancer in themselves? Could it be, could be a skin cancer or some other more serious type of cancer? Are they eliminated from studies? No. Some patients, we might have to wait a certain time period before we can enroll them into a trial after the cancer. But in general, those types of situations or those conditions do not eliminate someone from enrolling into a clinical trial. What about people who've had things like hip replacement or knee replacement surgeries? No problem whatsoever. Now, if the patient has a metal implant in their body, generally we cannot do an MRI. For example, if they have a pacemaker or if they have a spinal cord stimulator for back pain, those patients cannot, unfortunately cannot have an MRI. But there are other studies that will allow them in that don't involve MRIs. And what about patients who've had cochlear implants where they have a device on the backside of their head? If it's MRI compatible, it's just fine. If it's not MRI compatible, then it would be an issue. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of people in the villages who have diabetes. Is that an eliminator? No, diabetes is not. Great. So what's next after the MRI or PET scan? Once we get the results, we share them with the patient and the patient's family. And if the patient does have amyloid, a positive PET scan, then we We'll talk about our options in the research trial. If the patient does not, then we have well, then then the journey's not over. Which means if the symptoms continue to progress, even though they have a normal MRI and a normal PET scan, then it's possible they have another unusual form of dementia, such as what Bruce Willis was just diagnosed with: frontotemporal dementia. We see that in approximately 2 to 5% of cases. Can you tell our listeners what that diagnosis looks like? Sure. So Alzheimer's disease, that type of dementia, we associate patients have with memory loss, short-term memory loss in, in particular, sometimes behavioral changes. But in some of the other dementias, such as frontotemporal dementia, we'll tend to see behavioral symptoms as the predominant uh, presenting symptom and in, or, or potentially something like aphasia, where Bruce Willis could think of the word, but he couldn't get the word out. And that was his presenting symptoms. He was it, diagnosed with that first about a year ago. So if someone who has the thoughts but can't say the words, that is not Alzheimer's. Well, there can be an Alzheimer's variant. They can have an aphasic variant of Alzheimer's disease. This, the, it can be very difficult 
to figure out which type of dementia someone has. So if they have amyloid and they have aphasia or trouble finding words, then we assume it's an Alzheimer's disease type of dementia. They don't, for example, Bruce Willis would have had a negative PET scan for amyloid Mm -hmm. and his symptoms then, they would have felt he had frontotemporal dementia. If he had FTD, is there a treatment for that or is it just a wait and see deal? Unfortunately, there is no treatment for frontotemporal dementia. Is there other studies for frontal temporal? Yes, there are ongoing studies right now. In fact, I'm considering doing one here in the next couple of months. I'm looking at some of the science and, mm-hmm. and involved in that study. But frontal temporal dementia, right now, we, we currently do not have any effective treatments, but we do have research. Good. Are there behavioral symptoms for different types of dementia? There are. So Alzheimer's disease can, in fact, present with a behavioral disturbance as the presenting symptom. That's not common. That's in less than 5% of cases. But when we see diseases such as Lewy body dementia, that's a, that, that's a, that, that dementia occurs about 10% of the time. That's what Robin Williams had. We see behavioral disturbances wait, as wait. the predominant symptom. Well, he may have been disturbed for a long time caused, caused by drugs, but behavioral changes by themselves, are they a good symptom predictor for Alzheimer's? No, they're just a warning sign that something is happening. And then the question is, what is happening? Mm-hmm. For example, Robin Williams, the famous comedian and actor, yes, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Oh, but in fact, on a postmortem, he had Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia. It's very tricky. They're both caused by the same problem, but it depends on where that problem starts, whether it's in the motor part or in the behavioral part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So he was misdiagnosed for many years because it, it was very challenging to determine which type of dementia he had mm-hmm. or which type of problem he had. Uh, do you think it was possibly caused by all the drugs that he ingested in the 80s and 90s? I don't believe that that is currently considered a risk factor for the development of Lewy body dementia. Okay. So we were talking originally about what new patients in a clinical trial could expect. So after they're diagnosed and they get put on a trial medication, what happens then? We follow the patient usually for approximately 18 months to two years. These studies run anywhere from one to two years. Mm -hmm. And we'll follow the patient We'll collect MRIs every three months. We'll do things such as blood work and other safety procedures. We'll check EKGs. They'll come in approximately monthly for the medication Mm -hmm. and every two or three months for a safety checkup. What happens after 18 months? Well, right now we figured 18 months gives us enough time to look at the data to see if the medication is slowing the disease. Mm -hmm. For example, the one medication that just got approved Lecanemab, mm-hmm. ran a, they ran an 18-month trial mm-hmm. with approximately 1,800 patients to show that it did indeed slow the disease by 30%. So at the end of 18 months, usually there's an open label extension, but not always. But an open label extension means- I don't know what that means. Everyone now goes on the real medication and they continue to stay on the medication for a, a set or not even a set amount of time. They can run the trial as long as it's ethically, as long as it's still ethically okay to do that. So in the trial itself, that means some patients are actually getting the clinical drug that's being trialed and some are getting placebo? In most trials, that is the case. And it's we always have double to, blind? 
double blind. So I don't know what the patient's getting and the patient or the family knows what the patient's receiving. And these are really important because we need to follow a group of patients that the, where the disease progresses naturally mm-hmm. in order to show is the medicine affecting that? Is the medicine actually slowing that progression? So what we try to do, it, traditionally it was 50-50, half on placebo, half on the real drug. Mm-hmm. But the newer trials, we're getting a really good understanding of how the disease progresses naturally. Mm-hmm. So we're able to lower that number. For example, I have one trial where it's two-thirds get the real medication one-third are on placebo. So that's a two out of three chance of getting the real drug. And I actually have another research trial right now where everyone gets the real medication. Because we're moving into the stage with these medicines. We know that these classes of medicines are effective, but we're still trying to figure out dosing and how often and how much and when. So it's a very interesting trial. Mm -hmm. Are there any negative side effects of taking these clinical testing medication. Absolutely. We would never sit here and say there's no risk to taking a a medication for a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, You can eat a peanut and have an allergic reaction. A lot of people do. And a lot of people do. So we always go over the risks of these medications. It's part of that informed consent document I talked about earlier. What kind of risks are, are usually involved? Usually the risk, we do see these medications are, a lot of them are what we call antibodies. And so we're using a lot of antibodies in cancer treatments right now and treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. You see a lot of commercials on television for these antibodies. Well, whenever we give these antibodies, someone can have an allergic reaction to them. Mm-hmm. They're called infusion reactions. And they're not very common, few percent of people. And we usually give a medicine and it takes away the symptoms of that. So these Alzheimer's drugs administered by infusion? Most of them are. So they're not orally taken as pills? Some, some are pills. Some medicines are pills and some are infusions. Some patients say, I don't want an infusion. Do you have a trial that offers a pill? And we have some studies that offer pills. For example, we're doing a study right now that's being run through, um, that's associated with Duke University Medical Center. And it's a medicine that we hope might stop the bad clumps of protein in the brain from causing Alzheimer's disease. So that's a pill. Okay, so you used a a medical term that some of us might not be familiar with, exactly what it means, infusion. Can you tell our listening audience what an infusion involves? It's an IV. So essentially the medicine is in a bag and liquid and we, we put in an IV and we give the medicine through an IV. And then at the end of the, the infusion, they take out the IV? Yes, sir. Okay, so it's not like a, a port. No, sir. Absolutely not. No. Right. Good. Now, Dr. Curtis, as a researcher, what do you see in the future if you could look out five years for Alzheimer's? Well, great question, Mike. I've been in this business for 25 years. I've been seeing patients in Alzheimer's research trials for um, two and a half decades. And everything we've ever done has failed up until the past two years. Mm -hmm. So this is a great time to be in research. There's a lot of hope out there. And I think the future is offering some impressive, I think the future is going to offer us some new medications that we hope will slow the disease even more effective than the current generation Mm -hmm. of medications. But what I'm most excited about is prevention. The fact that we might be able to slow the disease before it even starts, before the symptoms even begin. So mm-hmm. those are those trials are ongoing and active. So there are trials ongoing now for someone who doesn't 
demonstrate current symptoms, but may have a family history of Alzheimer's? That is correct. So we're actually a part of the country's largest study looking at patients over the age of 65 that have no cognitive decline or cognitive symptoms, Mm -hmm. yet when we PET scan them, they have amyloid in their brain. Mm. So we assume that patient's going to go on at some point and develop cognitive symptoms and decline with Alzheimer's disease. So that study right now is being run through Harvard University and uh, University of Southern California. It's funded by the NIH. Mm -hmm. It's called the AHEAD trial. And those patients that qualify for that will then get the medicine for four years or a placebo. And that is the medicine that recently got FDA approval, lecanemab. Mm -hmm. That's the medicine they chose about four or five years ago before they knew it was going to work. So this is a great research trial and, and it will probably, it'll, we'll have the results in about five years. So I really think prevention is going to be critical. Similar to the way we lower your cholesterol and we reduce your chance of a heart attack or stroke, maybe if we can reduce your amyloid level in your brain, we can reduce your chance of ever developing the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Once a patient develops symptoms of Alzheimer's, what is their average life expectancy? Great question. And I've been it kind of relates. That's, pardon? I've been accused of that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a difficult question. In general, it has to do with their, what we call a, in medical terms, pre-morbid condition. Otherwise, were they exercising five days a week to begin with? Are they eating a good diet? Are they in decent shape? So the better shape you're in when you develop these symptoms, generally the longer you're going to live with these symptoms, the longer your term. But if I had to put a number on it, we're talking approximately 10 years. Mm -hmm. Dr. Curtis, thanks for joining us today in our continuing conversations about Alzheimer's. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. And once again, if someone wants to get more information, how do they do that? The best way is to call my office at 352-500-5252. And I also urge everyone to go to our website, www.craigcurtismd.com. Com, where they'll find helpful information and be able to look at some of the things we've done and where this field's going. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thank you. We are making a change soon. All of our shows will be distributed by a single podcast syndicator, Buzzsprout, both the old shows and the new show. We are also changing our subscription plans. Now you will be a supporter by simply making a subscription, subscribing via Buzzsprout. You can make it contribution that you'd like. We'd suggest $3 a month. If that's too much for your budget, you can pay less. Or if you're really enjoying what we're doing and want to see us continue, you can pay more. This is going to be a subscriber-supported podcast. We are making this conversion to make it easier for everybody. And all of the subscriber-only episodes that were available on Apple Podcasts will now be converted to the Buzzsprout channel and everyone can go ahead and listen to those. Remember, our next episode will air live Friday at 9 a.m. That's when it will be released on our regular subscriptions. Should you want to become a sponsor of the show, contact me at MikeRoth at RothVoice.com. If you know someone that you think should be on the show, send me an email at Mike at RothVoice.com. I want to thank everyone for listening to the show. The content of the show is copyright by RothVoice 2023. All rights reserved.